And a very good morning to you. We are live in London and Zurich and you're with Monaco on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Coming up today, holding the fort in Dufourstrasse 90, my guests Juliette Lindley and Emily Isahau will be sharing their news on the week's biggest stories. Buongiorno, Juliette. How are you doing? Buongiorno, Emma. Guten Tag. I love the story of the mafia mobster who was arrested. How did it happen? Why now? What's next? I'm just back from the WEF, trudging through snow and sleet. I'll give you my insights on that. And Jacinda's resignation. Is it okay to be kind as well as strong? And by the way, Happy New Year. Thank you in very China. much indeed. Well, Emily, how about you? What's on your list? My favorite story this week was a small controversy bubbling within the US State Department over a decision to change their official font that they use in diplomatic correspondence. And uh, perhaps on a more serious note, three protests took place simultaneously yesterday in Stockholm. So we'll unpack that as well. We have a busy morning ahead and we'll be also finding out the latest from North Africa and France from Mary Fitzgerald and hear the latest from Finland. I'm Petri Burtsov, Monaco's correspondent in Helsinki. I'll be bringing you news from the Nordic region. We'll be everywhere because we're also going to hear from Christoph Arment from Die Zeit magazine as well. It's the 22nd of January 2023, live from London and Zurich. This is Monaco on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monaco on Sunday with Emma Nelson. Oh, if only I were in Zurich. Good morning, Juliet Lindley and Emily Sahau in Zurich. I'm in London. Um, how's it going where you are? Good morning. Happy year of the rabbit. It's uh, a bit wintry in Zurich, uh, but given that it was uh, a rather warm winter this far, we'll take the cold weather. We'll be talking about that. Have we got Juliet yet? Or is she still getting her matcha latte? I am absolutely here with my vegan matcha latte. Good morning. Uh, hang on and a minute. We've gone vegan now. No, of course, of course, of course. But <laughs> just because it's veganuary. Catch me in February. Hang on a second. No. No, Juliet, we stop all things here. Slamming the brakes on this. Are you now vegan for January? Uh, uh, non-practicing <laughs> vegan. <laughs> <laughs> Depends. In spirit. Depends on what's being served up. Exactly. Or what you want but to what, eat. But, but, you know, I'm not a rabbit. What sign are you? I'm a tiger, darling. Oh, is that is it a good year for tigers too? This year? Just, Emily seems to be our expert. No, I, I don't know. We'll yeah. head to Emily in a minute because he knows all these things. So we're just coming out of the year of the tiger, which apparently oh, has oh. been catastrophic for tigers. Um, oh but I'm doing my best, Elton John, and saying I am still standing. We are still here. We've we've we've, we've you know still alive in the year of the tiger. So if you're a rabbit tuning in, ladies and gentlemen, uh, take take comfort from this tiger. How about how about we've already in in Chinese star signs. It's only three minutes past ten. What on earth has happened? The wheels have come off the programme already. Um, so go on, let's just, let's just, should we just get this out of the way? <laughs> yeah, we're all okay, served, we're on. having dumplings and wontons today, just so that you know, here in Zurich. The Monocle Cafe is serving them up piping hot. And we're that's all wearing marvelous. red. And, that's, and we're all wearing red. Ah, wonderful. Yeah. Even better. Great, great luck. Because, Juliet, you have Chinese. You, you, you are, there's a little bit of my Chinese, isn't there? My grandmother was Chinese. So it is true. We used to get little red envelopes with money in it for, um, for New Year. Actually, it's not done anymore. Apparently, it's done digitally or you send someone emojis of money bags. That's not exactly the same oh, thing. No, we need cold hard cash. How about you, Emily? Have you ever been the recipient of a little red bag? Unfortunately not, uh, but I do know I'm a dragon, uh, which in general is supposed to be not so bad, I, I've been told. Uh, perhaps that's uh, just a biased <laughs> that's perspective. That's what they told you. Yeah, exactly, no. exactly. What do dragons uh, do? Um, 
flap their wings. I, I guess so. We fly too far away. I think we like to travel. Uh, we're somehow strong, whatever that means. Uh, but what I did read this morning was that apparently if you're a rabbit, it's not the best of years. Why is surprisingly. that? Surprisingly, um, to be honest, no idea. Um, but for dragons, <laughs> it's a semi-okay year. We're doing well professionally. Um, on the romantic side, apparently a bit less so. Oh. Um, so oh. I'll, 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 I'll find out what happens. Well, you'll, he'll let months. us know. We'll be checking in with Emily throughout the year on that one. <laughs> and absolutely. he's blowing fire out of his mouth. This time, I was about to say, is the wonderful desk at uh, Du Vorstrasse 90, has it been fireproofed? Because we have a dragon around the table, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Daisy Ray, our producer, yes. Well, certainly we're standing, so it's been fixed because for a long time we were sitting. But um, yeah, she says yes, fireproofed. Yes. She's been she's standing yeah. by with the fire extinguisher just in case Emily loses his temper. I'm married to a dragon and have a dragon son. Um, oh, wow. And they are, by all accounts, they are strong leaders. Fiery. We'll see. Fiery. Quite so fiery, actually. And Emily, you've never struck me as being terribly fiery. Anyway. Oh, gosh, Emily, <laughs> take offence. You haven't seen me angry, Emma. Okay. Emma, I what? never planned to. <laughs> this tiger shall keep her claws removed. And um, we will be actually asking our guests what sort of Chinese star sign, Chinese signs they are this, this morning. Uh, I'm not quite sure why, uh, but we'll, we'll do. Um, stay tuned. It's obviously very exciting. Right. But, Emma, you, you do know yeah. that during, during this period between now and the 14th of February, which mm. is the whole extended year, um, you're not allowed to sort of clean the house, throw out rubbish, because you might be getting rid of good luck. So that's a good excuse. Wait a second. For you on. to just like chill out a bit at home. Sorry. <laughs> we're, we're not supposed to do what? We're not supposed to do throw any tidying. Or tidy up. What? Or clean. Yes. Two weeks. Isn't that good? Well, yes. Theoretically. You well. wouldn't want to by by mistake throw out some good luck I don't think and I'll be buying any I don't think I'll be buying any fish for a couple of weeks just in case that <laughs> happens go vegan see go You're vegan do a veganuary too excellent for the next 10 minutes um, right that's all dispensed with let's have a look how have your weeks been ladies and gentlemen in in, in Switzerland Emily how was yours um, it's been good. Um, busy, as always, uh, tends to be the case. Um, you think January is going to be relatively kind of you slowly starting the year, but it always turns out to be a rather hectic one. I was in Basel for a peace conference and then we, uh, without promoting our program too much, but we just went live with our admissions for the next cycle. So it's always a bittersweet moment when you're about to say bid farewell to your current students and equally exciting when you start thinking about the next cohort. So, what um, what it's kind, kind of, of students are coming into you? I mean, are you noticing it changing at all? Um, changing perhaps in the sense that there seems to be kind of the word is out there within our niche field of peace mediation. So um, we do, um, if I might um, say so myself, attract high caliber applicants, which is great. So those who are really in and around peace processes um, in terms of their work do want to come to Zurich and, and spend two years with us, not full time. So they come six times spread over the two year period. Um, so, yes, I, I, I think more and more high quality applications from all over the world, which is, of course, great for us because students is a, is a rather loose term with your course isn't it it and and given the fact that the world's focused so intensely on war for obvious reasons in the last 11 12 months have you noticed that you get you're getting different kind of people coming through the door um, yeah, and I have to say a student is a, is a funny term to use in this context. First of all, most of our students, if not all, are older than myself and, and, and they're highly experienced, seasoned mid-career diplomats or, or representatives of civil society. Um, so yes, um, I, I think uh, to your question, Emma, I think what we're seeing is an increasing interest, also including our program in the geopolitical dimension of peace mediation. And you see that perhaps also in the type of applications, um, regionally speaking as well. Uh, but yes, I, I, I often 
often call uh, them participants rather than students, just because it feels weird calling high-level diplomats students. I do wonder also, I mean, how quickly you had to start writing modules when, when Russia invaded Ukraine. Were you suddenly sitting down there thinking, right, what do we do now? So now that you asked, uh, so in March we have our second to last module of the current cycle and our kind of a week-long role plays, in fact, on the context of Ukraine. And we created this role play back in 2017 when the situation was very, very different. So yes, we've spent the past month or so kind of completely rewriting the role play so that it makes sense for the simulation uh, this time around Excellent. as well. Good, good week for you, Juliet. You were, you were up with your snowshoes on in Davos, weren't you? I had my snowshoes on indeed. I was there to moderate a panel for the Swiss government and actually a year ago um, it was a, it ended up being online because of the pandemic and I was moderating a panel on encouraging foreign investment in Ukraine and this was three weeks before the invasion actually happened and no one really believed that it was going to happen even though there was a ring of steel uh, in encroaching on Ukraine so it was interesting last year to see and there was a, a, you know Zelensky was was sending us his message and no one had ever heard of him and then look at where we are now so I was there this week um, trudging through the sleet and snow my panel this time was accelerating the decarbonization of the economy through sustainable finance. I'm not going to go into details. Very interesting panel. Um, but it, it was my first WEF in person. It reminded me so much of covering the Winter Olympics, Emma. <laughs> I was, I, especially, I mean, this time I, I was usually uh, amongst the press and uh, when I was covering the Winter Olympics. And you, I, I could just, I was watching with so much empathy, sort of the cameramen trudging through the freezing cold, carrying their tripods, looking into the different lounges. And a lot of them are by invitation invitation only, especially the, the prettier corporate lounges, if you wish, and sort of hankering maybe for a hot chocolate or a warm coffee. And speaking of hot chocolate, there was one giveaway stand. You have these giveaway stands and they were giving away Emirati hot chocolate. I thought that was interesting. Wait, do they even grow cocoa beans in, hot, in, in the Emirates? No, but it was just like, we know that you're going to be cold and freezing and we're going to offer that to you. And inside the Emirati house, there was a gentleman playing the oud, you know, the string instrument, and there were packed events. It was, it was interesting for me to see for the first time. I know that it's changed a lot. I mean, obviously, there were no Russian participants. There was a strong presence of, from, um, let's say, from the different regions of India, as well as Indonesia, Malaysia. And um, rather than crypto um, companies, it was more sort of just blockchain. Anyway, that was um, interesting for me, Emma. Was, when you said it was like the Winter Olympics, I had this strange thought that suddenly all the delegates changed into ski jumping outfits. <laughs> I think a lot, some of them might have sneaked out in between and gone and rented skis and d done a few pieces. There wasn't that much snow um, throughout the week. But when I was there, there was. Okay. We'll talk, go now to somewhere where it is pretty snowy. Let's head to Finland. We're joined by Monocle's Helsinki correspondent. A very good morning to you, Petri Burtsov. How is Helsinki this morning? Good morning, Emma. Helsinki is very snowy and cold. And just to get this out of the way, I'm a monkey. I wish I was a tiger, but I'm a monkey. No, we love a monkey. We, uh, I think Desi, uh, the, the lady in charge of Zurich, I think that's the only way I'm going to describe her. You're a monkey as well, aren't you, Desi? I don't think we can hear her. But yes, we have maybe thumbs she up can, on the monkey. She's got a microphone, Desi. Yeah, monkey, my smile. Monkey, okay, Petri monkey, Desi monkey, oh, happy monkey. Great, and Tyler monkey. Great, great. Oh, Tyler monkey as well. Our oh, valiant great. leader is a monkey. <laughs> 
chaos. Petri, I was in Helsinki this week and you all got very surprised because you had a lot of snow and that really, really, really made me laugh because I have, I'd never been to Helsinki before, uh, much to my shame, and I was delighted to go. And when I got into a taxi, the man was going, this is incredible, we've got so much snow. Um, why, are you, why was everybody so surprised about snow in Finland? It's because of climate change, you know. It's we haven't had snowy winters for many years. I think it, it well, actually, last winter was snowy, but a couple of years then before that, we're in snowy. So you know, um, when I was a kid, I remember every every winter being snowy. But now it's a kind of a luxury. And Emma, I have to ask you just to get this out of the way. You yes. were in Helsinki. Did yes. you go to Mummotunneli? I didn't have the time, so this is so for all our Helsinki wannabes. Where is this wonderful, glorious place? Oh, Emily might want to go into more detail. He might be a regular, who knows? But this is basically something that translates as the grandmother tunnel. And before you take offense, it's basically where everybody who's sort of over thirty-five goes out to party, and teenagers use this, you know, a pejorative term to call it the grandmother tunnel. But it's a, just a really, really nice sort of an. Uh, covered uh, nightclub which is like semi-outdoors and usually has live music and yeah if you don't want to hang out with teenagers you still want to go clubbing that's your place to go the grandmother tunnel Petri, I am so delighted that you still consider me as someone who would like to go out and go clubbing. Um, Emily, the, the, the name I'm not 100% sure about. Um, Emily, have you paid a visit to grandmother's tongue <laughs> <laughs> um, so no it, it is a real thing and it's really like an sure. ism uh, in, in Helsinki and in the surrounding cities so I've been there once just to see this marvelous sight uh, but no I'm not a frequent customer <laughs> well that's a real shame Petri next time we go we're all going to play, play a trip to grandma's tunnel um, absolutely but, I just find the one thing and it, this is obviously a total Finland newbie um, the fact was that I got on an aeroplane in London and I had my breakfast on the aeroplane and then when I arrived in Finland It was dark and my tummy was saying it's still breakfast time and yet my head was saying it's pyjamas time. Um, what I also noticed about the duty-free section in, in, in Helsinki Airport is that they have rows of local alcohol that frankly you could clean the inside of your oven with. I mean, those, this is... Your, your, I, Um, this is all leading up to me saying I absolutely tip my hat to you Finns because this is a hardcore place. That's high praise, Emma. <laughs> nice to hear. <laughs> Tell us what's happening in Finland, apart from everyone going to... I'm not saying the name of that nightclub again. It's massively inappropriate. Uh, tell us what else yes. is happening in the world. Right. So um, I want to maybe start with a bit of positive news. So uh, uh, Finland's airport operator Finavia uh, just reported, released the latest passenger numbers for, for last year. And actually, you know, there's been quite a strong rebound in... Um, Uh, air travel uh, after the COVID pandemic. Now, you know, we're not back to pre-pandemic levels uh, yet, but, you know, we had 15.5 million passengers at Finnish airports last year. And I think this is, you know, this is really good numbers, especially considering that because of the closure of the Russian airspace, our national carrier Finnair, you know, is, you know, basically all of its strategy of, of uh, being sort of a connecting uh, hub for Asia it just going up the wind you know um, so these are these are positive and, and good numbers I think Finns um, you know Finns have maybe discovered domestic travel I don't know it's, a, it's an interesting thing that you say that we'll, we'll come to domestic travel in a moment because I had, I had to whiz around Finland a tiny bit but I was actually quite surprised by how quiet the airport was when I went through Hel Hel Helsinki it's 
but there is a sense you know is there a sense that actually things are picking up properly because it it was quite well, it was just deserted when i was in there yeah, well, one thing I have to say about Helsinki that it's really um, depends on the time that you go because, um, you know, when the sort of the popular connecting flights from London and so on, when they arrive, then it gets really busy. But obviously, I mean, it's not like one of the European hubs that is busy at, at all times. So it just really varies. But I mean, I mean, it is the, the passenger numbers are recovering. But still, I mean, the fact that you don't see Chinese tourists because they, they were one of the biggest tourist groups before the pandemic. So it just so, sort of feels like some something is missing every you know especially when you go to lapland and you don't see the chinese taking photos and you know doing all the funny stuff when they see snow for the first time it's just you know it's not 100% yet no i mean if you just look at the numbers i think last year there were 13 million who went through helsinki in 2019 that was 22 million so we you know we we are missing a significant place the destinations the local travel how much is that being how much is that coming back well, that is actually at some airports, I think in Lapland, for example, the Kuusamo airport, one of the main airports, is actually already back at at the pre-pandemic levels and, and above. So, um, you know, that's that's a, that's a good sign. I think there was another domestic airport as well uh, that is just, you know, past the uh, pre-pandemic levels. Um, I mean, Emily, your thoughts on this one? I mean, the fact that like everybody else, Finnair did what all the big airlines did. They got rid of loads of jobs. And now if you if you get onto a Finnair flight, uh, you might not get a full-time Finnair staff member. No, that's right. And I've even the years I've been based here in Zurich, I've noticed um, uh, the difference in terms of service when you fly between Zurich and, and, and Helsinki. Um, but no, I, I actually I didn't take a domestic flight now that I was home for um, the holidays and went up north to Lapland. I chose to drive instead just to have a bit more flexibility. Um, but that's been, of course, a big discussion to what extent should the government in Finland kind of artificially uh, keep these regional airports in the countryside alive in the hopes that eventually there will be kind of carbon neutral um, flying as well. And I think in the interim period, they have to um, keep them alive. So again, in terms of political discussion, that that is ongoing. Uh, but no, I, I, I still do prefer Finnair. I think it's the only direct option between Zurich and Helsinki. Um, now that Swissair, I think, discontinued their um offer. Uh, sorry, for Swiss Air, that was an instruction. Um, Petri, <laughs> I mean, are you, are you seeing what Emily has just been talking about, the, the cultural shift from the plane to the car? Um, I would say a lot of people choose to also take the train. Um, most of my friends, actually, when they go to Lapland, they take the train because it's a sleeper train that you can drive your car into. And it's quite convenient because, I mean, you it's just the fact that in Lapland, you really, unless you're staying in one resort, you really need a car. But, you know, what can be more co- convenient than driving into the train and, you know, having dinner on the train? Then you have your own compartment, you sleep, you wake up, you're in Lapland and you have your car. That sounds like absolute bliss. Petri, take us to Estonia now. I, I hopped over as well. And that was the moment when you just did think, uh, From I went from Helsinki over to, to, to Tallinn, and my flight, wheels up to wheels down, was 19 minutes. I mean, it was just brilliant, brilliant fun. But as you're flying over the strait, you do think, could you just get on with that tunnel, please? <laughs> this is the end. So, so you headed over to Estonia as well. Um, yes, and what so- did you pick up on there? I was I was actually not in Tallinn, so I took the boat um, from Helsinki to Tallinn, which is about two hours, um, and then I drove uh, to the Russian border. So that's about a three-hour uh, drive to the um, uh, small town of Narva, which is a really interesting um, town in the sense that you know it's kind of a it's kind of an ambiguous identity of. 
of being an Estonian town uh, right on the Russian border with the 96% of the population uh, Russian speaking. Uh, and the history of that is that uh, during the Soviet times, you know, tens of thousands of uh, people from different parts of Soviet Union, of course, Estonia was part of the Soviet Union at, at that time, uh, moved to Narva to work in the factories and then, um, you know, break up of the uh, Soviet Union. And all of a sudden, you know, you have these tens of thousands of uh, essentially Soviet citizens, Russian speaking Soviet citizens in Estonia. Um, and, you know, a lot of those people still don't have Estonian uh, passports and, and, you know, they watch Russian TV and they're culturally quite close to Russia. So so I traveled there to spend some time with the locals and young people and, and you know elderly people and see see what life is all about. And you can you can actually read about this in an upcoming issue of Monocle. I thought you were going to say that. Uh, can you give us a clue about you know what's in, in your report? Because this is clearly sort of one of one of these moments when when culture finds itself directly at odds with, with geopolitics. Yeah, so so the it's not a like a straightforward report. It's more of a I think it's a headline, something like a letter from Narva. So, you know, just trying to paint a picture of everyday life in this, you know, in terms of identity, very, very divided and and ambiguous city. You know, I I go to, I speak with local artists, business owners, hoteliers, uh, young politicians, the mayor, and, 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 you know, just ask them what they think about the war. Um, if they're, you know, if they're split in in families when older people watch Russian TV and the young people, of course, get their news from the internet. So, just quite quite an interesting place to visit. It is indeed. I mean, Emily, with with your sort of Finnish hat on, with your peace hat on, and with the cultural hat on as well. Just looking at the idea of just just you do feel as if it's really close, don't you? I mean, the, the I was in a, in a hotel where there were members of the the, the German Baltic Air Police who were sitting next to me at breakfast and you just suddenly think goodness me I'm surrounded by people in military uniform um you do get a very strong sense of of that but if you live there if you grow up there if your family history is so deeply connected to you know a place which is now absolute trouble what effect does that have a huge effect of course and and these are things as you uh, alluded to uh, go back generations so you're not just dealing with individuals you're dealing with communities entire generations of people so there's no easy solution to these questions of for instance getting rid of street names etc um <clears throat> from a peace uh, process perspective what one would emphasize is the importance of the process to begin with so it's less about coming to kind of a, f- a factual uh, common ground in terms of this is the way to do it but rather have a participatory process where you di- bring different communities together um, to nurture those discussions where disagreement can take place as well um, but absolutely I mean it also taking a step back and looking at transitional justice processes for instance these are generational and and intergenerational processes that take time and and it's not an, a, a, a short order indeed and you, you you still have communities who might feel as if they belong nowhere absolutely and 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 um, this is of course not exclusive to Estonia and and they're from a state uh, perspective kind of creating a sense of belonging um, is extremely important and one could relate to uh, Switzerland as well where there's perhaps not a completely unanimous Swiss identity you have different linguistic communities different uh, regional communities but you need to find that common ground that brings the people together it might be building tunnels like in the case of Switzerland it can be something very very artificial even um, but again not it's easier said than done Petri uh, thanks for that Emily Petri let's move to 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 what's happening in Stockholm, um, normally a place that you would associate with, you know, a, a 
a, a reasonably stable place, but there's a there's a rising gang violence. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And this is a, a problem that has become so uh, severe, actually, that yesterday the Stockholm police um, declared um, almost um, uh, an, you know emergency um, powers, or, or 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 you know wanted to get uh, more powers from the government to deal with uh, the situation in the in the suburbs. So we've seen um, ever since Christmas, we've seen almost daily shootings and and bomb attacks. Not only in the suburbs where they you know they've also historically there've been violence in the suburbs, but also in in you know popular central neighborhoods such as Södermalm. There was a there was a, a bomb that went off there, and this is. Mostly, according to the police in Stockholm, about the local crime syndicates battling over who controls the the drug trade in in Stockholm. But it's just you know it's not something that we expect to hear from Stockholm. This is like something out of the Narcos <laughs> TV show, almost um, that that's that's taking place there. I must, I must confess, I didn't. I, you know, I'm slightly gobsmacked by this. What about our panel in Zurich? So I have uh, just an anecdotal uh, experience on this. So absolutely, it's a huge issue. And we saw this in the last Swedish parliamentary elections, that security and, and gang violence were really one of the top issues being discussed and, and perhaps to pave the way um, for the centre-right government uh, that's in place at the moment. But uh, my brother lives in Stockholm and uh, in our family chat, uh, my mother very kind of alarmingly sent a news article about the state of emergency being declared and asked my brother, so how is it going? How is it impacting? your life and and he said which state of uh, emergency again so it, Stockholm is quite fragmented and, and you can live in communities and areas where this has no kind of uh, immediate impact but of course that's not true in all communities and this is a difficult thing isn't it Petri because when you have um, you know per certain communities who are absolutely unaware of it you, you the centre-right government has to be very careful in its approach doesn't it yeah, that's correct. Uh, Swedish society, especially in Stockholm, is surprisingly divided. I would almost uh, classify it as a as a class society. You know, people living in the affluent areas of the center are, you know, they know that something is going on in the suburbs, but um, you know, that's about it. And that's what makes this recent um, um, spread of violence so 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 worrying in a way is that you know it's not only in the suburbs anymore, but as I said, also in the very central central areas. And you know, then there's the big debate about. As Emily mentioned, the centre-right government sort of came to power on this on this promise of uh, you know uh, fighting fire with fire, increasing the police presence and so on. But you know, um, there are those also more on the left than in the centre who say that will this yield yielding yield uh, lasting results? You know, um, is the crime really something that uh, that can be fought just with the police, or you know, do you have to look at how do you create opportunities for for young people that they have other alternatives than to turn to crime? Uh, finally, uh, fighting talk from Estonia to the Finns. Um, Estonia has declared that 2023 is a year of the sauna. Um, Finland, your response? Emily. Oh, that's Petri. a tough one. That's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, let, let them have their year of the sauna. We'll just enjoy our sauna without making a big deal out of it. Oh, okay. When they go low, we go high, says Petri. <laughs> Emily, are we are we up for a little bit more of a scrap from the from the table around Ufostrasa? Yeah, I was just gonna be a bit more peaceful and say the more the merrier. Let's embrace sauna culture. But no, I think this is completely ludicrous, unacceptable, <laughs> Emma. Um, sauna, even the word is finished. So, um, so okay, we have the let's drag- hold on to it.
dragon talk there. I mean, so, <laughs> so let's just flesh this out a little bit. And Juliet, I'd quite like to hear your your thoughts on whether you will be signing up for this uh, for the first time in two years. COVID, obviously, having played played uh, funny business with this, the European Sauna Marathon is back. Um, in southern Estonia between the 17th and the 18th of February. Uh, basically, what you do is you what you sign up and you're given a map with a list of saunas to visit, a tracking device for when you check in and out of each sauna. So it's a sort of a staggering start to avoid overcrowding. Um, but the team must spend at least three minutes in each steam room and then can visit hot tubs and ice holes along the way. Um, the saunas are competing with each other to offer the most experience. Juliet, are you signing up for this one? Yeah, I think so. I'm just curious, um, why just three minutes? I mean, can I stay longer? And I'm actually not a great expert on saunas. Emily, what's the maximum amount of time you can stay inside before you just got to jump into a freezing lake? Well, they used to even have world championships uh, on this, ah. and, and which I think went against the spirit of sauna culture because it's not about competing, etc. It's a, a relaxing thing. But I would usually stay in for like 10, 15 minutes max. Um, so is is there a long. scientific maximum after which I'm, I'm not, I, I guess it would depend on the temperature. And then, of course, part of the sauna culture is you kind of go outside, dip in the lake, or if it's winter, you might roll in the snow in between. So you do this back and forth which allows right. you to kind of go for hours emma when you were there is that what you were doing well there were plenty obviously all the jobs. time it's all i did um pen, plenty of offers actually to hop into a sauna and when i t- said that they oh. i said that um, that i didn't have my swimming costume they just looked blankly and said that's yes, not a problem. that's not a problem and i said i'm british it is a massive problem um i would go in a coat if i could um but petri <laughs> let's let's <laughs> talk about this this sort of sauna comp- com- the, the, the absence of competitive in the sauna of course it's collaboration it's conviviality you you just can't you can't you can't get you know antsy in a sauna can you um, but the idea that you have to spend is there such a thing as a minimally culturally acceptable time no, not really. Finns are really flexible ab- about that. You know, it's it's almost like a spiritual experience for us. There's no right or wrong. But I do have to t- you know, tell you a personal anecdote. When I was a, I used to be a Rome correspondent in my previous life, and at the local gym in 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 Rome, they had a sauna, and they had this like hourglass on the wall of this is the maximum that you can stay. That it's going to get really dangerous. And it was like five minutes. You know, I usually go for like an hour. <laughs> and I just and then they they didn't even have a a bucket of water in there that you can throw to the sauna. That's the whole point. Goodness me! <laughs> uh, right, so Petri's yeah. now his his so in a non-competitive way. Petri has now said that he spent an hour in a sauna. Um, yeah, Zurich. Right non-competitive so i spend uh so actually a recommendation it's not a <laughs> paid advertisement but there is a sauna boat i think on the lake of zurich and on other lakes as well and i've spent one day a full day whole day on the lake you get to kind of have a group of friends i think maximum six seven people and then you drive around um the lake of zurich and you have a sauna you have a little terrace um so yeah i've done a full day uh, but on the minimum i have to say um emma that there is a rule um and so if someone throws the water onto the stones um, as, as Petri mentioned there is a rule that you're not allowed to leave when the steam is really making its way to your body because that's a bit rude because you open the door yeah. the steam leaves the sound and then you ruin the experience yeah, for others correct. so if you're there inside when someone throws water do not leave for the next 
two, three minutes. I absolutely love the fact you can just hear Petra in the background going, yep, that's right. Yep. That's, that's right. <laughs> I approve. Oh, yeah. This is lovely. Um, Sound correspondent in Helsinki, Petri Burtsov, thank you so much for joining us. It's 9.31 here in London, uh, 10.31 in uh, Zurich, and it's also 10.31 in Berlin, which is where we head now. You're with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson, and also Christoph Arment, Editorial Director of Zeit magazine. Good morning, Christoph. How are you? Good morning, Emma. I'm, I'm all good, although I have to say it's, it's a bit grey, still cold in Berlin, but you, uh, you talking about the sauna uh, situation in Europe made me kind of remember the <clears throat> Finnish-style sauna in my parents' house uh, where I grew up, and I'm still discussing with my father why they got rid of it when the children had left the house, so... Uh, really makes me want to go back to to the old days when they, when we still had the Finnish sauna. Sauna is clearly the theme of the day, Christoph. So, what was <laughs> what was it like growing up with a sauna in the house? I mean, was there a, a sort of like ritual, like after school on a Friday night? Little Christoph went and did his uh, designated ten minutes just to calm down. And what, what what was the protocol? Well, maybe maybe our parents wanted us to to calm down. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's probably true. But, Usually we, it was a Saturday evening and uh, then we jumped out of the sauna into the garden and it was still snowy and then we went back and watched German television shows. Uh, I mean, serious. Christoph, you have no idea how good you had that. I mean, <laughs> Juliet and Emily in, in Zurich, were you, were you subject to this absolutely glorious childhood where you had a sound in your house? That's just what I was asking Emily. Yes, we have shared laundry spaces in Switzerland, but apparently in Finland, either you have your own or you share them, right? That's right. So I, I grew up, as as most Finns, I would say, um, in a house um, that did have a sauna. So you go usually on at least once per week on the weekend. And then, of course, most Finns, again, it, it's not the Swiss chalets. We have rather rustic cottages in the countryside that then typically have a wood-heated sauna as well. So absolutely. And, and as um, Juliet said, uh, apartment building. So even if you don't have your own akin to having a shared laundry space usually you have a shared sauna in the building that you can sign up for and and, and go on and and get um cleaned up in the sauna and what's the minimum age oh my god sorry emma i'm just wondering a kid going to i mean like what All ages, and you make your way up in terms of Ah. uh, when you grow up, you first start on the lower level, because maybe perhaps sitting all the way top is a bit too hot when you're just like four or five years. Uh, But then you make your way up, and then it's a kind of a coming of age thing when you've made it to the big league and you're sitting all the way up top. Uh, Well, Christo, did you have the same thing in the the Armand household? Same thing, like (coughs) it's a coming of age thing, I guess, also, (laughs) also, yeah in this small town that I grew up near Frankfurt. So I, I didn't know that I had a Finnish history in my life, but right now I do. So thank you for that. It's a delight to have you tell <laughs> us the story of the saunas. Um, and a happy uh, Chinese New Year to you, we are asking. What, what flavour are you? Well, I'm joining your team, Emma. I'm also a tiger. <clears throat> and the, the, the thing about tigers, I guess, is they're all optimists. So uh, heading into this new year, I think we need optimism. So I'm, I'm happy to join your team. Welcome, Team Tiger. Thank Tell you. me, let's get down to business. How is Sight Magazine doing at the moment? Well, we're, we're doing really, <clears throat> really fine. Uh, we just published um, a design special issue about mirrors, um, and we asked, like you know, m- many celebrities in Germany, politicians, artists, musicians, uh, to do selfies in front of their mirrors, and it, it was a kind of funny experience for the team because really everyone joined. The invitation so it's a it's a large spread of the magazine where you find out about <clears throat> actors like Lars Eidinger politicians 
uh, like uh, Lars Klingbeil, who's the party leader of the Social Democrats, they all joined the team and, and found out about their own mirrors and, and how they look into a mirror every morning. Um, and um, yeah, I also, I also learned a lot from that issue. So I, I, I didn't know that human beings were struggling to produce proper mirrors for, for you know, centuries. But of course, the French finally, uh, at the time of the Renaissance, uh, invented the, the mirror that we're looking into today. I like the idea that what you do is you give control to the subject themselves, because I'm, I'm not sure how much you experience that when you do try and talk to somebody who has a public profile that you have to go through about three or four thousand other people before you're actually allowed to talk to them so how how did it feel both for, for you and for your subjects to suddenly say actually i am now going to take control of of my image in front of my mirror well the funny thing is i guess that we all believe that we take control and we have control when we do the you know the selfie or the, the photograph ourselves but as we all know that we're still sharing a lot of information about ourselves, although we, we think we're in control. And I think that's quite fascinating to find out. Why did you choose mirrors? Well, you know, if you, if you go into an apartment or in a house of a friend, then you, you know, either they, they don't have, have hardly any mirrors in the house, and then you think like, oh, why are there no mirrors there? Or there are too many mirrors, which is also fascinating. Um, and I think uh, it's, it's the first thing that, you know, when we get up in the morning and we, we go into a bathroom and we look at the mirror, it's the first thing that we see and is ourselves. So I think um, it, it's, a, it's a great subject to uh, find out about, you know, our relationship to the world and to ourselves. It is interesting. I must confess, I have an enormous mirror in my house. I bought it in a junk shop and it is five foot by five foot. It's a, wow. Vic- it's a Victorian one that leans against the, the, win- the walls because no walls will take the weight. And we have it in our lounge. And when people come in, they look at me and just go, have you got the most enormous ego <laughs> that you demand that you're... I mean, this is an absolute pain. Um, but it is one of those things that people suddenly start to talk to you about who you are and your identity. That's right. But, but what, what's your answer if, if your friends enter your house? Yes. I have an enormous ego. (laughs) (laughs) You're a tiger. I'm a tiger. (laughs) And then I hand them a glass of wine and it all goes fine. Uh, Tell us what else, uh, Christoph, that you've spotted or that's that's piqued your curiosity this week. Well, in Germany, of course, there's a lot of discussions about our war strategy in, in the Ukraine. And I think it's quite... It's quite a, a, a mess, really, because Germany is doing so many things to, to support the Ukrainians. Uh, but they, apparently our chancellor is not able to really properly uh, communicate, you know, what Germany is doing. But they're also struggling with the question of, you know, do we send tanks or don't we send tanks? And uh, Olaf Scholz this week uh, had a phone call with Joe Biden. And then after the phone call, he said, well, if the Americans send their tanks then we also will. Um, which is really sort of a strange way of, I think, uh, you know, supporting Ukraine. And, but it also, you know, really can find out about German history. Uh, we're still struggling with that history, apparently. It, it is. Um, an, a lot of the commentary has been around is that Olaf Scholz is, is struggling to accept that every leader at the moment in the West is actually a wartime leader. Yes, and I think that really goes down to the German history, you know, the history of German in the 20th century. Um, and I think Olaf Scholz is 
um, you know, part of that generation who probably never thought they would, uh, you know, we would have a war in Central Europe again. And um, I think, yeah, that especially that generation is still struggling with the new role of Germany, that everyone outside of Germany is expecting Germany to, to fulfill. And, um, yeah, I mean, Olaf Scholz is, is traveling to, to Paris today uh, because uh, Germany and France are celebrating the 60th uh, anniversary of the uh, LSA Treaty, the Friendship Treaty uh, between the two countries. Um, and, you know, facing another problem because the German-French relationships have been uh, not in the best state in the last couple of months and years. So, um, yeah, I think uh, Olaf Scholz is facing uh, a lot of problems. Do you think that, that Scholz could possibly benefit from a little bit more transparency? Because when um, the, the Germans said, you know, we're not ready to send the Leopard tanks out, we're not, we, we need to still count the number that we have. And everybody's jaw dropped when they thought, uh, you, man, don't, you uh, don't know how many tanks you have. And, yeah. and, if, and if they could I'm just a... perhaps say, we're still working our way through this, you would say, OK, we get you a bit more. Yeah, it's so embarrassing, isn't it? I mean, you know, the, like Germany not being able to count their own tanks. I mean, that's just, I mean, we were, we used to be the country that everyone thought was well organized. Uh, I think we're really, yeah, it's, 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 it's embarrassing. It's just embarrassing. And do you think that Emmanuel Macron might be able to twist his arm a little bit more to say, come on, step up to this, please? Well, I think he's, he's, Emmanuel Macron is, is really good in stepping up, right? Uh, and Olaf Scholz has been sort of, this kind of, you know, non-communicating chancellor trying to imitate Angela Merkel in many ways. Uh, if we're talking about communication. Um, you know, on the other hand, I think we're, we're quite happy with him, generally speaking, being this kind of, uh, you know, um, relaxed and also maybe not too ego-driven politician. So I think... Um, well, I hope Emmanuel Macron is going to have a real chat with him today. Let's put it this way. Christoph Armand, Editorial Director of Zeit Magazine. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle on Sunday. In a moment, we head to Marseille, so stay with us. Monocle's February issue celebrates places that work, providing a roll call of appealing outposts that will inspire and encourage you for the new year ahead. From a top transport system to a seemly city hall or cultural HQ. Elsewhere in the issue, we meet the perky Brazilian coffee company that has crossed to Europe with ease and visit the car plant in Morocco that's revving up the nation's commitment to renewables. And then, as usual, there are reviews of the best hotels, restaurants and travel hotspots to pack your diary with throughout 2023. Order your copy of Monocle's February issue today or subscribe to get instant access online. And you're back with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson, holding the fort in London in Dufourstrasse 90. We have Juliet Lindley and Emily Isahauer. And we also head to Marseille now to get the latest from our France and North Africa correspondent, Mary Fitzgerald. Very good morning to you, Mary. Good morning, Emma. So tell us what's happening where you are. 
Well, I think the the news of the week here in France, in terms of what uh, dominated the news agenda, was um, was basically the protests and strikes on Thursday in protest at uh, President Emmanuel Macron's uh, very unpopular plans to raise the retirement age in France by two years to 64. Um, this, of course, is not new. Uh, Macron has tried to reform um, uh, this retirement age for, for a number of years now. But in his last presidential campaign last year, he basically said it's it's now or never in terms of reforming the state pension system. He basically wants to bring it in line with, with France's European neighbours, uh, countries like Spain and Germany, where the retirement age is 65 to 67 years old. But this has caused uproar in, in France. Um, the French are very, very protective of um, their current retirement regime. I was in uh, nearby Aix-en-Provence yesterday, where there were, if not quite protests, but demonstrations involving music and dancing, highlighting uh, the risks of raising the retirement age. So the, 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 the protests and strikes we saw on Thursday about a million people, um, according to the Interior Ministry, turned out to, to protest across the country. Um, public transport came to a standstill. Some teachers were on strike as well. There is this kind of concern within government circles that this basically is going to um, be a recurring theme over the next months as Macron tries to push through this uh, this controversial plan. What's astonishing is that this is not the first time I have heard the story of a French president trying to raise the the, the retirement, trying to raise the, the pension age, and coming unstuck here. Indeed, it's it's been a, a kind of a hardy perennial, if you like, in, in French politics. And what's quite interesting as well is, you know, living in France, and you know, you get into conversations, you hear people who coming coming from other European countries saying to their French friends and colleagues. Um, well, elsewhere in Europe, the retirement age is is higher. This is, you know, the the world we're living in, as are so the argument some people make uh, goes. Um, and the French are just very prickly about this. They're extremely protective about this. And I think a lot of this is, you know, in terms of the the various trade unions here, they're making the point that. Um, you know, a lot of the people affected are doing essentially manual work, um, whereas the people who are defending uh, the reforms uh, are working in offices, etc. So there's that kind of interesting social cleavage in terms of this debate as well. But I would say, I mean, polls have shown that the vast majority of the French are opposed to to this plan. Indeed. And that's what Macron is, has to, to reckon with. Indeed. And when they go on strike, I mean, the, the whole purpose of a strike is for it to bite. What has been the effect on French society by these strikes? Well, what's interesting about these strikes is so just before Christmas, we had um, strikes by the, um, the the public transport unions, the rail unions, uh, which caused a lot of public anger. These strikes, because this is an issue related to everybody and everybody's retirement uh, uh, age, um, you see that there isn't uh, the same kind of grumbling um, in terms of the the strikes uh, targeting public transport. Uh, and that shows, again, it's a reminder of how there is widespread opposition to this plan. And I think what's what's haunting Macron in many ways is, um, you know, the ghosts of the Gilets jaunes or the Yellow Vest uh, movement uh, back in 2018. That was in response to um, another reform, which was about um, 
fuel prices, etc. But that really gained um, such a, a momentum, a momentum that caught Macron by surprise, caught many people here in France by surprise. And I think, yeah, that's the ghosts of that are still there. And I think that this year, I mean, this is the first real test that Macron is facing since he was re-elected re last year. This year is going to be crucial in terms of that. It's also interesting, of course, to see how his opponents are seizing the opportunity here, um, here in Macron, uh, here in Marseille, rather, um, on Thursday. A very large protest. Um, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the, the French hard left leader, who was one of the presidential candidates last year, he was uh, with the protesters here in, in, in Marseille. Uh, this is very much a kind of a Mélenchon city um, in terms of his share of the vote in the election last year. But he and, you know, his associates obviously are very much latching onto this issue as as a way of, you know, um, politically damaging Macron, but also, of course, within their constituency, the the issue at heart is 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 extremely important to them. Um, let's look at the the city that you you call home at the moment, Marseille. Um, anyone who's ever been knows just how deeply connected to the sea it is. Um, but there are pushes against a number of boats and ships coming in. Yes, indeed. So this is um, an initiative by um, the City Hall. Uh, Marseille has been governed since 2020 by a very interesting and, and quite unique coalition in France. It's a coalition of the Greens, the ecological parties, and uh, and the left. Um, and the mayor, Benoit Payan, has um, basically really pushed um, an environmental agenda since he became mayor. And one aspect that he really wants to kind of gain momentum with um, in, and this is interesting, in cooperation with his fellow mayors around the Mediterranean, is the question of um, uh, air pollution that is caused by large ships, meaning merchant and uh, cruise ships around the Mediterranean. So if you look at Marseille, which has um, some of the worst air pollution in France and other cities around the Mediterranean, they tend to have high air pollution levels. And uh, this is caused by a range of factors, but including and particularly pollution from, from large ships. So last year, um, our mayor basically decided to launch a campaign against this, and uh, he brought on board uh, the mayors of 24 other cities around the Mediterranean. And um, there, he's basically planning to organize this year a meeting of those mayors um, uh, around the Mediterranean to to further push on this. So what I think is interesting here is, is you know, first of all, tackling... Um, air pollution caused by large ships, but also this idea of pan-Mediterranean cooperation. And, you know, Marseille, given its its um, its kind of history in the Mediterranean, in terms of the Mediterranean, its place in the current Mediterranean, I think it's ideally placed to kind of take the initiative in terms of these kind of pan-Mediterranean um, projects where you basically see cooperation, collaboration around the Mediterranean in terms of the, the common challenges. It is important, though, to bear in mind that the municipalities may be in agreement, but how do you convince the, the, the companies that run the ships that they need to do something about it because they have their businesses to run? Exactly. And that is a real challenge here. Um, you know, last last year, the, the mayor here and his campaign, um, they basically, um, you know, got the International Maritime Organization to 
um, implement um, a so-called SECA zone. It's the zone for control of emissions of sulfur oxides and, and particles as a result of, of their campaign. But of course, there is resistance from the companies. What's interesting here on a popular level in, in Marseille, I mean, one of the things the mayor uh, launched last year was a petition um, against this, was that there's an ongoing debate here in terms of what um, cruise ships in particular um, bring to the city. Um, because research has shown that cruise ships dock in Marseille and their passengers don't actually spend a whole lot of time in the city and don't spend a lot of money in the city. So this has been an ongoing debate here. And, you know, there are some um, people in, in Marseille who go further than than our mayor and basically say that, you know, cruise ships should not be allowed dock here, um, which kind of gives you a sense of, of how heated the debate here can, can sometimes get. Um, let's talk about... Um a subject that we don't normally talk about very much, and that's football. But um, you've you've been following the fact that we're more than a month on. I think we'd gosh, I can't even remember what's going on with time because we had Christmas in the middle. But but the December World Cup, Morocco still riding high. Yes, indeed. Um, it's it's quite striking here in Marseille, actually. Of course, um, France has the, the largest uh, Moroccan diaspora in, in Europe, and, and Marseille, after Paris, has the second largest in, in France. And it's, you know, just the other day, I was walking by the, the Viewport, the old port here in, in Marseille, and, and saw a tea seller who, you know, on his stall had a French flag and a Moroccan flag flying alongside each other. And of course, um, listeners may remember that um, France and Morocco faced off together um, in a qualifier in, in, the, in the World Cup um, in the semi-final France won of course um, but it was interesting in terms of the discussion around um, that particular game given um, you know the, the colonial history here the fact that we have a large Moroccan diaspora here in France and what I was really struck by is that you know there were some um, commentators and politicians here in France including on the far right uh, Eric Zemmour presidential candidate last year far right candidate who was trying to kind of politicize this um, this game and also Morocco's uh, success um, politicize it in terms of causing divisions and what was instead very obvious in in France and, and certainly in Marseille was you know there was a sense and, you know, there were many um, uh, residents of Marseille of, of Moroccan origin who were basically saying when France and, and Morocco were, were up against each other, saying no matter who wins, they'll be happy. Right. So it was really interesting in terms of that idea of identity, people having, you know, their French identity, Moroccan identity uh, as one. And I was struck by... Um, Something that um, uh, Osman Fardous, who's uh, Morocco's former minister of, of culture, youth and sports, uh, said to me, um, this was in, during Morocco's success uh, in the World Cup. He made the point, he said, you know, um, because most of the Moroccan team were either born in Europe or they play for European football clubs, he said, you know, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, he said, you could call this a joint Morocco-Europe venture. Um, but while he was being somewhat <laughs> tongue-in-cheek, what I found interesting was that that captured the sentiment I was hearing from a lot of members of the Moroccan diaspora here and elsewhere in Europe, where they felt this team really kind of captured, um, you know, how 
complicated histories play into contemporary ideas of identity in terms of the Moroccan diaspora in Europe. And that was really, really interesting. And I think we're still seeing it, you know, play out in terms of the the aftermath of, of that success. You know, Morocco is still basking in the success. It was the, the furthest uh, that a team from the region had, had ever gone in, in the World Cup. Um, so very interesting to observe. Mary, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Marseille. That was Mary Fitzgerald. You're with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson, and I've got Juliet Linley and Emily Isohau listening to that. Still basking in the glory of football or is that a long time ago? I think it's a long time ago. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm all into winter sports, alpine skiing. Um, it's Kitzbühel this weekend, so other things than football. Are you a participant as well? Maybe not in Kitzbühel, um, but, but well, I don't know. Are you? Are you a former member of the Finnish Olympic team? So I am not, and I, I, I probably will never be. Even though on Friday for a colleagues' farewell party, we did go, we did go curling, and I realised that it's a sport where you can probably do relatively well even at an older age. So maybe it's it's not a completely impossible thing. You're not referring back to the grandma tunnel, are you, Emily? No, no. Oh, okay, just checking. <laughs> this is this Emma. Is, maybe we'll take up curling. We have this hour discovered the secret uh, sort of like Nordic sport in. in leisure history of all our guests. We have Christoph growing up with a sauna in his back garden. We have Emily doing his curling. I mean, this is, what I quite like about this is there's a sort of a, a joyful activity going on here, whereas I don't know about you, Juliet, but as soon as it gets cloudy and cold, I retreat indoors and hide. Absolutely. Cup of hot tea and bickies, isn't it? It is. <laughs> Scones, cream tea, all of that. Not going and jumping in cold lakes here. Are you, Em? I mean, are you a cold water swimmer? Yeah, what do you think? I'm I'm, sa- I'm, sand I'm between a warm the- bath <laughs> my- kind of person. I'm a hot bath kind of person <laughs> exactly. and sand between the toes. Um, exactly. We've got two minutes, so go on. What, what have you spotted in the papers super quickly? Well, no, I mean, Petri mentioned quickly the Narcos scenes in Stockholm. So, of course, I have to mention, it's not quite that, but a scene reminiscent of The Godfather with the Sicilian police arresting the most notorious mob boss at a Palermo private clinic, Matteo Messina Denaro. So you've got to wonder, well, why now? Well, perhaps because he's allegedly not doing very well. He's got cancer. So maybe he even gave himself up. What I found interesting was the generational gap reaction. So you've got young people. They were like, there was applause in the streets. They were hugging you know, the police and this arrest uh, sort of sparked a lot of enthusiasm, whereas you've got the older generation much more silent. And if, you, if you've ever been a journalist in Sicily trying to get a soundbite, omerta reigns, that sort of secret code, if you want, you don't speak, you don't talk about it. I didn't see anything. I didn't hear anything. And I'm not telling you anything. So that sort of grabbed my attention, uh, Emma. And I loved that I saw somewhere that apparently this mobster's guilty pleasure was luxury clothing. I mean, you even had shop his look, sort of the leather jacket, the hat, the glasses. Anyway, yeah, you're going to shop that look. There, there was absolutely there was a there was a there was an element, wasn't there, that he still he'd been arrested, but he still he styled it out with his sunglasses on. Yeah, you kind of thought that he gave himself up, and that's why he made sure he looked good. But this is now my chance, Emily. If you're ever going to be arrested, what's your choice of choice of attire? <laughs> Uh, don't say what you'd wear in a sauna. <laughs> Just don't say that. Uh, depending on the crime, but I would uh, think I would be rather embarrassed. So I'd just have a large hoodie just to cover my uh, face, yeah. probably. Imp- implication of guilt there with that one. You need a <laughs> fabulous pair of sunglasses for that one. Juliet, you're just about to be arrested. What's the outfit? I'm going for Gucci all the way. <laughs> oh, right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. A sort of you pa- would too. A pair of glorious kick flares. 
We're going right, right, right back to the 90s, that sort of, that sort of stylish thing. Thank you so much uh, for joining us on the line from Dufourstrasse 90, Juliet Lindley and Emily Isahau. And thank you to all my guests as well for joining us on Monocle and Sunday. Uh, to Petri Botsov in Helsinki, to uh, Mary Fitzgerald in Marseille and to Christophe Arment on the line from Berlin. Our producers today, well, is Desiree Bandley holding everything together in Zurich and many thanks to Adam Heaton as well for being at the controls here in London. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle on Sunday returns at the same time next week. Hope you can join us for that. But for now, enjoy the rest of your weekend and goodbye. Goodbye.